How much do you know about money? If something were to happen today, would you have the financial knowledge to survive on your own? And how do you maintain your family and cultural commitments? I'm Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk about understanding money. Are you in a position to save? Or does every little bit that you earn go towards essentials like food, transport and education? And if there's nothing left from your main income, how do you pay to support your extended family? Marion Wangi lives in Port Mosby with her family, and she also supports her mother and her sister's children. Everything is money. I have to pay for rent, I have to pay for food, kids going to school, you going to work. Everything is money. <laughs> so relying on the fortnight pay, I see that in the city it's hard. So we have to make some extra income to make ends meet and keep me going. Mm. And you're trying to manage your income in Port Mosby, but also how important is it to fulfill family commitments back home in your community? Back in community, when there's a need, like there's death in the family or bright price, that's the time they ask. So I have to try to at least give something back to the family because Sometimes when you don't help family, you know, it doesn't look good. Although Marian works full-time with the finance department, she has had to find other sources of income to make ends meet. She sells billums that her family sends from the Sipic River, and she also makes and sells Mary blouses. I see it because there's a need I have to do that to provide for the family. If I don't do that, it's, it's going to be hard. Who will help me? I have to do that. I have to sacrifice in order to provide for my family. How common is this in Port Mosby to do more than one job? Um, I, from now I see there's a lot of ladies who are doing that too. Some working ladies and some who are not working, but the husband is working. They are doing that to help their husband as well. How do you <clears throat> prioritize uh, what to spend your money on? Um, I prioritize, I see what's really my need and what's the wants. So mostly I go for the needs. And what are some of the wants that you miss out on because the the cost of necessities is so high? Wants, maybe holidays. I don't really take my kids back home for holidays that often. Marion, how do you budget and save? I, whatever that I spend on materials, usually I don't buy my materials here too. I buy my materials from outside of Palm. So when I sell blouses, I make sure I put the money for the new materials and the freight and all this. I have to, what needs to be spent again, I have to put it on the side and whatever that's profit, I use it to meet my needs. Mm. Is there ever money that's left after you have paid for all the things you have to pay for mm-hmm. uh, so that you can save a bit of it? 
Yes, I do save maybe 150 kina or 100 kina. I just put it aside, save it for emergency. Good on you. What is your advice to other women in a similar situation to yours, struggling to make ends meet in the city? I would say continue what you are doing. And if there's opportunity to do other things apart from sewing, maybe cooking and some other things, go for it. It will help you make ends meet. But don't give up. Yeah, I know it's really a struggle and it's tiring, but continue what you are doing. And don't forget our creator. Blessing will come. That's great advice from Marian Wangi, a mom who works in a full-time job as well as making merry blouses and selling billums to earn extra money. This is Sisters Let's Talk with Hilda Wayne. Dr. Alice Pollard is the pioneer of West Arare Rokatani Kenny Association an organization that helps indigenous women in rural Solomon Islands with saving money and financial education. In the rural West Arare setting, one challenge we experienced prior to the saving was that our rural families often depend on their urban relatives for school fees, for food, and for many items that they would need for family consumption. So what we were trying to address here, not only depending on their uh, family or siblings who work in Honiara or other places for cash, but also the member of parliament. Many families depended very much on asking the member of parliament for small things, for school fees, for buying saucepans, for buying an axe or a, a, a butcher knife for working, or even to buy food. So we come to realize that women in the rural village can earn money on a daily basis. And if we can teach them to manage that little earning, they will be able to meet basic needs like education, food, kitchen utensils for the family, rather than asking the member of parliament or their relatives in Honiara. So that was the main reason that gave rise to the Women's Economic Empowerment Program we started for our rural women. With those programs that you're running, what basic skills do you teach them? The first thing we do was to teach women about money and uh, the financial literacy training. We teach them to understand money, to touch money, to study money, to, to know the power of money and to know that they are the boss of their money. The money should not boss them around. We teach them to understand difference between priority needs and wants or less priority things or things that can wait if the finance is not enough to meet all items. We teach them to do basic budgeting and recording of money coming in and money going out from their pocket 
on daily basis or weekly basis. We teach them the art of saving. And our principle in saving is save little by little and watch it grow. Because rural women earn little money, we teach them to save that little money and put it away in a safe place. Uh, that's how the saving program came through. Then we teach women to engage in, in loans, that the cash we need to, to buy basic things, we don't have to depend on the member of parliament or our family relatives in Honiara. We teach them to take responsibility uh, to meet their basic needs. We have uh, basic small amount of seed money from friends, donor friends, to start up this loan scheme where women can learn to to loan money and then repay it back in a time that is flexible with them. We also teach them to engage in small income generating activities where they are in the village, what they can do, what they already have the resource for based on strength based approach. We look at what they have, what can they do, uh, what are their skills, can they do something uh, rather than coming across to Honiara for marketing and other business activities. And you mentioned savings. Why is this so important for these women? Saving is so important, firstly, because they do earn money on daily basis or weekly basis or monthly basis. We must not underestimate the power of earning of our rural women, because they do marketing almost on daily basis in a small way, but they earn almost every day. Even though they earn $1, $2, or $3, or $5 every day, we treat that, that as money. That, that's important. And so because they earn little, we then teach them to save little by little. We also noted that if they do not save, money goes out very quickly from their hands. We refer to that as money as our um, very faithful friend. Uh, we refer to them as faithful friends, you know, who can go anywhere you send them, even at night during cyclone season or in the rain or sun, when you say money, go here, they go there. So because money is a faithful friend, we teach the mothers to allow them to say, okay, uh, look after your faithful friend, don't send them too often away, allow them to sleep with you for a week or a month before you send them away. So that that money saved can be used for the very priority needs or the necessity items for the family, like, for example, the school fees. We noted that education is the most expensive item of a rural family budget. So we teach them to uh, save money, mainly to make education and health and basic services. We did an analysis of the withdrawal in terms of why, why do you withdraw money and for what purpose? We noted that education is the main item that mothers withdraw funds for from the savings. What are your tips that you teach them on how to save? Yes, we provide uh, a recording system where our rural bankers at its zone 
can do manually. We provided them with calculators, basic stationaries, three lockbox, and we trained two bankers of each zone to collect money, to balance money, and to be able to get the money to the bank. So we equipped them with basic tools, skills, and knowledge to do the work in the village. How hard is it for women to trust the people who are helping them put their savings into the bank? Trust was the hard thing that uh, rural women had on me. I was involved right from the beginning when I did the first collection. Some of them started their saving with $1, $2, almost more than 50% of the beginner of the first savers started with $5. So it took them a while to trust me that when I received their $5 or $1, $2, that I am going to care for it, manage it, look after it, and that I will not use it for my own. So then what we had able to do along the line was to provide them update report on their savings. We provide them annual reports on their zone saving, how they are all going. We provide them a report on how much withdrawal they are doing. We provide them reports on how much each zone is receiving, each zone is depositing. So we have been able to be accountable to them. Mm. If we had failed right from the beginning, it would not come this far. But I ensure that all our recordings are done well right from the We do it right from the beginning because most of our rural women are illiterate. And they trust what they see with their eyes, what they hear. So mm. once, we, once we made a mistake, you know, that's it. It will kill the whole thing. What have been some of your best success stories with women who've been in your program? You know, we started a saving in 2006, September 2006, and by 2018, we saved two million. And uh, the other improvement we saw was that women, rural women, were now using banking terms. When we started, one of the ladies asked me, Alice, what is withdrawal? You used to withdraw in your training. What is it? Can you explain it to me? But after all the financial literacy training, they all use these banking terms, deposit, withdrawal, balance, interest. So it's a big achievement for us to help women have confidence uh, in themselves in terms of understanding money and managing money. Dr. Alice Pollard's West Arere Rokatani Kenny Association has helped women throughout rural Solomon Islands build their savings. It's one thing to produce or make goods that can be sold at the market. But how do you gain the financial literacy to develop and grow a registered business? Sonia Rushenberg's business began with her tie-dyeing hobby. Before her husband died, 
he encouraged her to turn that hobby into something bigger, which meant she had to learn the ins and outs of starting a business. I'll be honest, it's been very difficult. A lot of aspects of running a business, to run it to a point where it can be a formal business or a registered business, it's been very hard for me. There's a lot about running a business that I do not know of. I haven't been able to save. I don't have the financial skills for that, nor the access to a certain financial skill set to make sure that I do run my business in a professional level. But every day you learn something new. And most of us moms who are at home who try to run little businesses, it's most of the skills that we have are all self-taught. We are lucky to have access to technology, information and technology these days, which allows us to go online and learn certain skill sets that in the end can help us in our businesses. But overall, to have the full access to financial literacy and a certain financial skill set that will move our business from being run at home on a day-to-day business from hand to mouth to a certain level of having it registered and being able to employ people and turn our businesses into a brand that is known, that is still, for most of us, a long way off yet. So, Sam, so just so sorry to hear about your husband's passing. Not only was it a personal loss, it must have been a significant impact on the business. Yes. Yes, it has. We started it together, and, like, he was my number one supporter. He was my driver. He was my business advisor. He was my financial controller. Even as far as in the home, he had been my cook as well when I was busy trying to get orders done or things like that. So when I lost him, I I couldn't work. I had to stop because, as you said, the impact was just so profound. Like, I missed his uh, presence in my work, and he was also a part of my inspiration and my motivation. So it took me a couple of months to go from being just so heartbroken and not being able to touch any of my products to any of my work to slowly getting back into it. And um, we had so many plans for Sons and Daughters for this year alone. And we were also talking about goals and plans for the next five years. And it was um, mostly those plans and the memories of that I have with him that has driven me so far to continue with what I do and also strive to complete as much as I can for our goals together. So how are you managing your financial planning, particularly for the future for your kids? I'm taking it one day at a time. Because of my business, I've been able to set aside some savings for emergencies and for my like for in the family, I've been able to save um, a bit of money on the side for our daily living as well as some emergency funds. And I've literally had to learn the hard way how to save. I've always been able to rely on my husband. But now, like, I've learned to save something for my family. And not only that, I do, I had to, like, really learn and be strict with the way I was spending our money. And I had to like really, really count the dollars and the cents and be able to come up with a savings plan that that has been able to look after us throughout ever since, um, well, our, our main provider and my husband has been gone. 
I don't have a really proper filing system. I have no accounting system whatsoever. I do not have a laptop or a desktop at my home in which I can, you know, create a spreadsheet and work from. Basically, what I do is I know what my main bills are. I know what my expenses are. And at the end of the day, from my sales, what I do is I just, you know, separate them all out into percentages, how much I need for my bills and utilities and likewise for my overhead costs. Sometimes I make it, sometimes I don't even cut even, but the best I can do is just daily. I can't set really a monthly goal or a yearly goal due to the cost of living here in Solomon Islands. How much of a difference has it made for you to learn about money? Very much of a big difference. I've learned how to control my spending. I have learned um, how to control my, my budgeting. And it has also taught me on how much or how far I can go credit-wise, not only just for my household bills, but also for when it comes to running my business. And it has mainly in this year alone, it has taught me control. Sonia Rashenberg is getting more confident by the day in running her tie-dye business and supporting her family since her husband died. You're listening to Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia. We've talked a lot about financial obligations to our families and our communities. They can really put a strain on your ability to buy the essentials, and a lot of people like Maria, who we met earlier, have to take on more than one job to make ends meet. You might think your relatives living overseas in wealthier countries like Australia or New Zealand find it much easier to meet the obligations. But it's not the case. Nicole is a Samoan woman living in New Zealand. As well as sending money to family in Samoa, there are costs that come with living in the diaspora. There are times when we have our families, extended family get-togethers, and that has always been a practice from a lot of us who have moved from the islands to keep our connections to our bigger whanau or extended families. Um, so these are some of the obligations is that we attend these functions, whether it's for funerals or for um, transference of titles, matai titles, or discussion on the lands that others have probably used to a certain extent that may have upset some of our family members where the norms are not being uh, upheld. And then there are church obligations like um, my granddaughter just had her um, baptism. So this is something that even though other family members are not Mormons, but it's like a initiation process that we have to make sure that everybody knows who they are. And that uh, because these are the young ones who will continue the lineage for us. But of course, we also have our obligations to our family, extended families. And it depends because some of us are like my biological father has passed away. So my mother lives here in New Zealand. So what we send home is either part of our in-laws obligations, but also the extended family so that when we go back home, 
our place is still there. We still have a, uh, a seat in the round folly of, of, of our families in the villages. How often do you send money to support family? About three or four times a year. It's going less. <laughs> well, I guess when you're fresh off the boat, the connections are still, are still raw. <laughs> but as, as life goes on, this year we've sent uh, probably it's about four times. <laughs> like Marian, Nicole does extra work outside of her main job to be able to gift this money. But when you live in the diaspora, there's a hitch to working more. So it may not look like I'm, it's draining, but as you know, in, in these developed countries, the more jobs you take off, the more they take the tax of your salaries or wages. Um, however, I think I have managed to minimize the strain in terms of uh, having these systems in place. And I know some family members, other members who actually make sure that any overtime that they can get in the factory jobs, like the I, we have family in the Tigo, which is like a, a chicken factory, they make sure every weekend they get those overtimes because that's the extra monies that they actually sent to the islands. Are the financial obligations purely cultural or are you aware that are people relying on that money for their income? Well, you know what? It depends. Some of our families think that this is their main means of income. And yet they sit on how many acres of land? Like hundreds of acres of our land. <laughs> you can say that and, again. <laughs> um, yes, yes. I mean, I have, oh my goodness. So when we go back home and I'm thinking, why is everybody just sitting in the fale and not doing what we used to do? Like uh, we every Saturday, we used to go in the village, in the plantation to plant taro or get the coconuts. Or um, sometimes we do the copra and this is what we sell and get income. But at the, for some of our people, they, it's like they do like a, a round. So one week it might be me. And then uh, probably two weeks later, they ask uh, maybe my sister and I wouldn't, My uh, it's it's only like four or five months later that we discovered that uh, our family members have actually been exploiting us, <laughs> like ringing my mom oh my and then God. ringing me, like separating. And yet we didn't know that they were talking to other family members for for monies. Yeah. So if you ask me if it depends, because some some family members only ask you if it's like because you if you carry a high chief title, there are some obligations in the village where you have to contribute. So these are the, the are, maybe I should say the good members, <laughs> the good family members. They only ring you in that kind of uh, way. But then we have the young family members who do this little round of ringing around to get their monies. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I guess it depends. <laughs> That's really interesting. And if you don't support uh, your family financially, how are you perceived? <laughs> well, you know, the little ones, uh, excuse my French, you don't really, you don't really care if they give you any names or labels <laughs> because you know, they will always rely on you. <laughs> and when you go back home, they come, they stick to you like a fly. So, uh, but um, the older members, I guess uh, we, we always have to maintain that uh, sense of respect. 
but uh, I know some of our family members who, um, if they don't send money, we get labeled. Fear palangi is like you want to be a palangi. You, that's someone word for a, a white person. Wow. Or um, oh, uh, she's doing all the the in-law stuff, but she forgot about us. <laughs> like you know, your own family. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, well, I guess it depends on how you take it. Me, <laughs> whether you 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 take it personally or you just let it go. You make a call whether you you need to give or not. Yeah, and if you don't give, oh, okay, yeah. I don't want to see you anymore. And then you say, well, we don't want to hear from you anymore. <laughs> so you got to develop that sense of, uh, you know, that thick skin sometimes. Nicole has figured out when it's okay to say no to a request for money. Thanks to all my guests today, Nicole, Sonia Rushenberg, Dr. Alice Pollard and Marian Wangi. Next time on Sisters Let's Talk, gender-based violence isn't going our way, and it's especially bad in Papua New Guinea. So all needs to step up and take responsibility for the problem. The biggest victims of violence are women and children, and the perpetrators are men. So the people that can fix this are men. That's next time on Sisters Let's Talk. Sisters Let's Talk is presented and produced by me, Hilda Wayne. Our supervising producer is Kim Lester. Executive producer is Inga Stunsner. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production. I'm Tasol Nabungimu next time.